Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Laura is unable to be here this morning, so I'm going to read to you our passage. It comes from the sixth chapter of Amos. It's on page 839 if you wish to follow along. First, let me invite us to join together in prayer. Gracious God, because you are God, your word and your word alone is life for us. And because you are gracious, we trust as you have before that you will speak to us again through these words that have been handed to us through the generations of the faithful. We are here, O oh God, we are listening. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Word of the prophet, alas, for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first to go into exile, and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So Amos was called by God to be a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II ruled for about four decades in the middle of the 8th century BCE. Many called it the golden age in Israel, for Israel's neighbors to the north and the south were weakened, and Jeroboam was able to stretch out and open up a, a trade route called the King's Highway. It ushered in an, an age of prosperity for Israel. You hear it in Amos' words. You lie on beds of ivory and drink wine from bowls and feast on lambs and minstrels play on the harp. It was a good life. But the economic benefit of the time was limited, concentrated, and many were left out. The royal family and prominent citizens, they were awash in luxury. For others, they were left to live on whatever trickled down. That is, why, that is why God sent not only Amos, but it is why God sent prophets often, was to lift up the plight of the poor. And Amos spoke in what it, it, many saw as a golden age, and Amos proclaimed that, that they weren't seeing things right, that actually Israel was in the process of falling apart. It seemed counterintuitive to folks, but 
Amos said that Israel was actually collapsing and would soon be in exile. It, it turned out he was right about that. And when the Assyrians thundered in and these erstwhile prominent folk were spread across the Assyrian Empire, hereafter known as the 12 lost tribes of Israel, they asked, how did this happen? And your answer to that question, whether you think Israel was overthrown by an outside force or crumbled from the inside, it may depend on what you think about the teaching of Amos. It's important to know that Amos did not condemn those who benefited from the economy for their success. It wasn't point. He condemned them for their apathy, for their lack of responsibility, for their not grieving the ruin of their neighbor. In chapter 2, he says, You sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You trample the heads of the poor into the dust. For, for Amos, this issue of poverty was not a matter simply of economics. It was a spiritual issue. And he found traction in that with all kinds of folks. They understood that economic realities were a spiritual issue, and those who were well-off saw their economic status as a sign of God's blessing. But Amos says, God may not be who you think she is. In 1880, Reverend Russell Conwell preached a sermon that over the years he preached 6,000 times, same sermon. You think I repeat stories. <laughs> same sermon, 6,000 times. And it, it was entitled, Acre of Diamonds, and he proclaimed that God wants you to be wealthy. The opportunity to be wealthy is within the reach of every single person, he said, and there's no more holy work than acquiring wealth. Conwell was an early voice in what's now recognized as what's called the prosperity gospel. If you're my age or older, then you know some of these preachers. They are Oral Roberts and Jim and Tammy Baker. You remember them? And currently such evangelists as Joel Osteen. And there's a preacher in Atlanta with a huge church. His name is Craig Flo Dollar. That's really his name, Dollar. And Dollar proclaims that God wants to send you money. Kate Bowler has studied this movement, and she notes that the theology and the spiritual practice of the prosperity gospel is that God will bring you wealth, and the best way to obtain that wealth is to tithe to the church, to be generous to the church. And if you are, God will reward you financially. Now look, I think giving to the church is important. It's of ultimate importance. And my own experience is it is rewarding. But I find it insulting to use tithing as an investment program. But the prosperity gospel preachers proclaim just that. And as a result, many of them mass vast amounts of wealth 
planes and gold-plated bathrooms and air-conditioned homes for their pets. All of it is evidence, they say, of God's blessing in their lives. So you are smart people. You see through this. You know that people of wealth and people of poverty are all children of God. You know that if someone drives a nicer car than you do, it's not because God favors them more. And if someone has no car at all and must ride the bus to work, it's not because God has favored them less. You know that. At the same time, I wonder if there's not just a smidgen of prosperity gospel in all of us. I mean, God is supposed to bless us, right? God wants us to have life and life abundant, right? And when the circumstances of our lives fall in pleasant places, doesn't it feel right to say, I have been blessed? This is complicated because Jesus says, I want you to have life and life abundant, he says, but at the same time, we just know that money's not a sign of God's favor, so how does all this fit together? Amos says, it's not really about the money. The problem is the community is falling apart because you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They suffer and you don't see it. You're comfortable enough you can insulate yourself from those who aren't, and so it feels more distant than it really is. Now, first of all, I don't know if it's say that to us. I mean, every day scores of you volunteer at our food pantry. Every week, scores of you volunteers, tutors at Faxon School, seeking to give these children the life skills necessary to succeed. You swing hammers for Habitat. Hillcrest Transitional Housing is getting families in Johnson County off of the streets and into housing. It wouldn't be successful without you. At Christmas time, you collect gifts for children whose parents are incarcerated. Last year, you partnered with Thelma's Kitchen to help them create a pay-what-you-can cafe where people People of all walks of life can sit literally at the same table in a few weeks. You will hear about our 2019 signature mission, Avenue of Life, as they are finding homes for every homeless student in Wyandotte County. At Village, we battle poverty and its crushing effects. And I think you are faithful in that. But still, I'm pushed a bit by this old prophet of Israel. Because if I understand the text, Amos says God views poverty not as something unfortunate, but as a demonstration that something has gone wrong. A common and attractive explanation of what has gone wrong is to blame poverty on the poor. We are told that success relies on hard work and discipline to live within your means and that everyone has the opportunity to succeed. As Reverend Conwell said 6,000 times, God has an acre of diamonds just waiting for everyone. 
So if success comes, the obvious reason is because the poor are lazy or don't live in their means or are undisciplined or whatever. That belief is attractive because there's an element of truth to it. There is. These virtues and practices are required for us to be successful. But we all know people, some in your own families perhaps, who have worked hard, exercised discipline, and still life falls apart. The temptation to blame poverty on the poor leaves us tempted to remove any responsibility to look at the whole community. And when an element of truth is lifted to be the whole truth, it results in untruth. If I understand Amos, he says poverty is not really the problem. Poverty is the symptom of a community that's lost its way. So the problem is not us and them. The problem's all of us. I'm reading David Brooks' book, The Second Mountain. He observes in this book what he calls the catastrophe of hyper-individualism in American culture. I find him a wise voice about this. He says, there is always tension between the self and society. And if things are too rightly bound, then the urge to rebel is strong. He said, but today we have the opposite problem. In a culture of hyper-individualism, we are lonely and loosely attached, and communities are dissolving. He further asserts, we have taught ourselves that the only real motives in human life, the only reliable motives in human life, are ones of self-interest, and we have normalized selfishness. There's tension between the self and the community. I think that's true. And the prophets warn us that wealth, wealth can tempt us to be isolated in the self, removed removed from those in need and to assume all is well and not to recognize this is not just an individual problem but it's a communal problem. So I don't know if you're a baseball fan. If you're local, there's not a big reason to be right now, but I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but baseball is awash in statistics. They have statistics on everything. Who hits best on a Tuesday afternoon in May with a guy on second? It's, 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 it's statistics on everything. So, some statistics. Whit Merrifield, who plays second base for the Royals when he's not in right field, is with one game to go, leads the major leagues with the most hits in the season. He will not be caught. It's not possible. And Jorge Soler, the designated hitter for the Royals, has hit more home runs this year than any Royal ever before, surpassing Moose's beloved record of 38 home runs. Soler will end the season with 47 home runs unless he goes out with a bang today. These guys are having a record year. The team is also having a record year. 
being notably one of three teams in the American leagues with more than 100 losses. If you're not a baseball fan, let me put that in context. That is bag over your head embarrassing. <laughs> but we have the statistics. But at the end of the day, it's not about the players. It's about the team. Brooks says there's always been tension between the self and the community. And the prophets teach us that when it comes to the blessing of God, it is most notably recognized less in the individual and more in the community. The prophets tell us that we need to be particularly mindful where the community is fractured and broken and in need because that points out to us not just their need but ours for the community is eroding. There are some striking similarities between the days of the middle of the 8th century BCE in Israel and our own. And I am not pretending to know the way forward on this. You know this. You just need to know I know this. I am not pretending to have any answers here. But here's my suggestion. In a culture of hyper-individualism, we need a different conversation about us, about all of us. We live in a 24-hour news cycle that is increasingly polarized. We live in a political season that seems to be campaigning all the time and governing almost never. And the consequence is that America is left to live a binary life when those on the edges are controlling the conversation. It's either all this or all that, and that kind of binary thinking is killing us. I think the blessing of God is intended for all, not just a few. So our work with the poor is holy work, but we need to do it with a recognition that it's not just for them. It's for us. We need that. And when we're on the bottom, when we need help, it's not just for us. It's for all. We don't do this just because we have a service to offer. We do it because we have neighbors that we're called to love. So the first step is to know them. It's hard to love what you don't know. It's hard to love who you don't know. It's not us and them. It's all of us. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.